1: Hello, welcome to New Books on the History of the American West, which is part of the New Books Network. My name is Andy Graybell. I'm your host for this episode, and I'm a professor of history, as well as a director of the William P. Clement Center for Southwest Studies at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. It's my great pleasure to speak today with Elliot West, alumni distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Arkansas, where he taught from 1979 to 2022. Elliot is the author of numerous path-breaking books, including *The Contested Plains*, *Indians*, *Gold Seekers*, and *The Rush to Colorado*, published by the University of Press University Press of Kansas in 1998, which won numerous accolades, including the Francis Parkman Prize from the Society of American Historians, which is presented to a work of history that is distinguished by its literary merit. Elliot is no less accomplished as a teacher, and during his career, he won multiple awards for his work in the classroom. For my money, he is easily among the most accomplished historians of the American West in the broader 19th century United States of his entire generation. Today, we're going to talk about his latest book, Continental Reckoning, The American West in the Age of Expansion, which was published earlier this year by the University of Nebraska Press as part of its storied History of the American West series. Welcome to the podcast, Elliot.
0: Thank you. It's good to be here, Andy.
1: Excellent. So I've become an avid New Books Network listener, and it seems that many episodes, maybe even most of them, begin with some variation on this pretty basic question. Can you tell us a little bit about your career path and specifically how it is that you became a scholar of the American West?
0: Well, uh, that was largely accidental. I grew up in a newspaper family. Uh, My father was the editor of of the uh, Dallas Morning News. My brother went on to be a a travel journalist, very good one. Um, So I was expecting uh, to go into that world, which I loved. Uh, But along the way, and I majored in journalism, along the way, I uh, developed this this, uh, this other love uh, for history, specifically American history. And on a whim, I was all ready to go into grad school in journalism at UT Austin. Uh, But on a whim, I decided to uh, apply for graduate school in the University of Colorado because I love Colorado and in history because I loved history. And uh, to my uh, astonishment, they offered me this very nice uh, fellowship for three years. Uh, and so I decided I'd do that. Um, when I got there, I, I was I was uh, shocked to discover that I was supposed to choose a field or to narrow my <laughs> my interest down. Uh, so I told them I want to be in the old South Southern history. Uh, they said they didn't do that. So I asked them, what do you do? And they said, oh, we do the West. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll do the West. So it was, <laughs> It was entirely serendipitous. Uh, I'm glad it happened, but it was uh, there was no planning behind it at all.
1: What drew you originally to the study of the American South?
0: Well, I grew I grew up in a very Southern family. I grew up in Dallas, Texas, but my family was all from uh, old Mississippi, Kentucky, South Carolina, Georgia, uh, steeped in that uh, steeped in that history. Uh, if you've lived in Texas, Andy, so you understand that in uh, many ways uh, the Civil War is not not yet finished. <laughs> Alas, <laughs> and uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that was sort of the, the historical world that I grew up in, uh, and I was fascinated by it. Uh, and as it turns out, it's kind of interesting because uh, more more recently, I've, I've really developed a fascination with the parallels between Western history and Southern history, and how those two how those two interact.
1: Well, that's certainly sort of a theme that's at the heart of your new book, which um, which we'll get into. So. Continental Reckoning is the third installment, although it's the fourth actually published in this really incredible, success, incredibly successful series by the University of Nebraska Press um, on a history of the American West, which I sort of think of as the sort of history of the West equivalent of the Oxford history of the United States. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it joins, your book joins an enormously successful volumes by Colin Calloway and Anne Hyde and then most recently Sally Deutsch's book on the first half of the 20th century which appeared actually sort of just before yours I'd love right. to know a little bit more about sort of this broader project um, and how you got pulled into it and when you began working on the book that uh, that I now have sitting on my desk staring back at me
0: <laughs> well um the series was was founded by and is and continues to be edited by uh, Richard Gettleman, Dick uh, Gettleman, who who taught for many years at the University of New Mexico and retired quite a while back. And Dick was an old friend. I've known I've known Dick Gettleman for more than fifty years, uh, and he, he approached me. I know him as a fine editor and who knows the American West very well. So I said, uh, "Sure, I'll do that." Uh, I had no idea what I was committing myself to, uh, and it, uh, the book is. Been in the works for well more than twenty years, probably twenty five years or so. Um, as I got into it, I realized number one the complexity and the richness of that story. My my job was to uh, was to cover uh, the what I think of as the birth of the American West after the expansion of eighteen forty eight. Um, actually, in fact, my my original assignment was to cover the history of the West from eighteen sixty five until nineteen hundred. But after studying it, I uh, had a year's fellowship uh, at the Huntington Library, and, uh, and after, after a year of uh, working on this, I realized that uh, the real dividing point is not 1865, which, of course, is the end of the American Civil War, but rather 1848, 1845 to 48. And that's when you know, the, the West begins to be born and emerges as part of the American nation and, and part of an international community so uh i switched my uh bookends chronological bookends uh from the 1840s until around until around 1880 uh, it, so the, the uh this this at least this volume of the series uh, evolved in that way
1: how did uh how did dick respond to your uh changing chronological parameters <laughs> he, was, he was he was not terribly happy <laughs> he, uh, yeah uh, of course, I'm
0: sort of stunned what what are you doing um but I convinced him you know and I, it sort at the end or very pretty quickly he he saw he saw the point uh and that is the you know in the history of the American West, the birth of the American West the Civil war comes in the middle of the story uh not not at the beginning uh so to to start in eighteen sixty five he has me uh, have you you know jumping in with two feet right in the, right right in the middle of the of the of the narrative uh, it makes much more sense to think of this in terms of uh, starting with uh, expansion of the 1840s, and what I talk about in the in the book of what I call the Great Coincidence, almost exactly simultaneous with the uh, final signing of the treaty of the third act of this expansion of the 1840s, you know, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in uh, February of 1848, uh, almost exactly simultaneous with that. Uh, James Marshall discovers gold on the American River. Within 200 hours of Nicholas Trist signing that treaty, uh, Marshall picks up that first fleck of gold worth about, worth about 50 cents, uh, and that sets loose what at the time was far and away the greatest and richest gold strike, gold rush uh, in the history of the world. And mm-hmm. those two things together, the completion of expansion, the discovery of gold, have enormous implications not just for the West, but for the uh, for the United States.
1: I love that uh, that coinage, the great coincidence, and I want to come back to that momentarily, okay. but I still want to stay maybe at 35,000 feet because I'm really intrigued by sort of the 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 wider conceit um, of doing a book this big on so much material and itself as part of a, of a broader series. So um, I'm really familiar with your oeuvre, Elliot. so it se- sounds to me, have been working on this book for 20 or 25 years, that you were probably doing it in some way simultaneous with work on the Contested Plains, um, certainly um, uh, on the last Indian War about Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce. How did you balance, or in fact, were these somehow synergistic? But How did you manage these multiple projects at a single time, I guess is a question that I've got.
0: Yeah, well, it it was not not terribly easy. <laughs> was, uh, you know, my, my family and friends um, uh, suggest that I have uh, suffered somewhat from uh, attention deficit disorder. <laughs> I've, become, I've become fascinated with whatever, what sort of new trends are developing in in my in our field uh, of Western history, and uh, and all of this, you know. And so there were several examples of that during the time that I was researching and, and moving toward writing uh, writing this book. The emergence of environmental history is a is a is a crucial. Uh, part crucial way to understand the history of the West. For example, um, various forms of uh, of ethnic history, uh, new approaches to Native American history, all of that. This happens simultaneously, and I, and I tend to get diverted. Uh, and so I would, you know, the Contested Plains, and book before that, the Way to the West, uh, where my uh, first exploration into environmental history, um, the Last Indian War has to do uh, among other things of uh, with of new approaches to Native American history and how how our uh, treatment of Native Americans uh, fits into the larger uh, the, the larger um, chronology the larger development of of American history during that time uh, so uh, it was it was very difficult you know to uh, to keep all those balls in the air. on the other hand, it was enormously rewarding. Uh, I guess I learned so much by. Moving into those other those other to- those other projects uh, and, and seeing them through and all of that really kind of comes together I think in this uh, in, in this mo-
1: most recent book. Let me ask you a more broad question. Well, a couple more broad questions, but one of them is uh, certainly about sort of your turn to environmental history. Um, I think that uh, listeners who are familiar with the contested plains will know exactly what I mean uh, when I say that it just revolutionized how I understood Great Plains history, particularly this notion of all this energy locked up in the grasses um, of the plains and how that provides certain opportunities, but also imposes certain limitations on the people, particularly the native people who call it home. how did how did your interest, because your early work, um, you know, Saloon on the Rocky Mountain Mining Frontier is uh, a classic work of social history. How did uh, what was it that sort of turned you, at least in part, um, but very successfully to these questions of environmental history? Uh,
0: uh, well, as you suggest, my earliest interest was in social history. Uh, by that, I mean, <clears throat> basically sort of the history of, of everyday life, you know, what. History of communities, especially history of families. Um, it's it's always, but it still is still is a great uh, you know, a great draw to me in terms of um, in terms of what I what I'm interested in, what I what I'm working on. Uh, basically, I just I just I just love to to study how people uh, you know made their way through their days back and during this extraordinary time of, of the uh, the American frontier. So that was my. First fascination that uh, the first book um, on saloons of the Rocky Mountain mining frontier. That was followed up by a book called uh, "Growing Up with a Country," which is a history of children uh, and, and childhood on the on the American frontier. Um, I'm the father of five children, so <laughs> partly a partly <laughs> a, a grow an outgrowth of the curiosity of looking at my own kids, my own children, and wondering you know what what would life have been like for them back in uh, you know. Colorado in the 18, uh, the eighteen fifties and sixties, for instance. Uh, but then, you know, while that was going on, uh, this extraordinary work began coming out in environmental history, uh, m- most notably by people like uh, William Cronin, Bill Cronin, uh, Richard White, uh, Donald Worster, um, and it was it just uh, as, as a friend of mine likes to put it, to just rearranged my middle furniture. You know, I got hmm. fascinated what they were doing. And it happened that I uh, received a, a year-long fellowship uh, right at that point. This was about 1992, so I remember, um, to the Newberry Library, a very fine uh, library in Western history in, in, in Chicago. So I decided to use that year, that fellowship uh, to simply retool, to learn what I could about, uh, what I could about um, environmental history. So I spent a lot of time both at the Newberry and then I would get on the train and go to Northwestern University. They have a very large uh, library in, uh, uh, in, in environmental studies. Um, so I spent, sort of divided my time between uh, between Northwestern and the Newberry um, and began to think about how what I was learning might apply to the part of the country that was fascinating me at the time, and that is the Great Plains. I was, as I said, I went to graduate school, University of Colorado, and I was fascinated with the Colorado history and the Colorado gold rush in particular. So I began to look at it through the lens of this when I was learning about environmental history and, and realized that, you know, the big story was not so much in the mining towns where I studied saloons, the big story was on the plains, the plains, and, the, and this story involved uh, all kinds of people in developments, uh, certainly uh, Native people, uh, as well as the, uh, the, the Colorado gold rushers. So, so that uh, that was that was my 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 introduction to it. Uh, I wrote about that first in a collection of essays called The Way to the West, which was a right. uh, came out of the um uh, a lecture series at the University of Mexico, the Horn Lectures, uh, and then I built upon that, used that as a sort of a stepping stone to write this uh, larger narrative that became uh that became the book on the, on the Great Plains, on so the Contested Plains.
1: Right. Right. Which, again, I just admire so much and have assigned so many times and always with great great success. Students love it. Um, Okay, so I'm biased because the decades that you consider in Continental Reckoning are, frankly, those that most interest me as well. But I'm going to argue uh, for the idea that this is the most consequential period in the history of the American West. Um, You're welcome to take issue with that if you'd like. Uh, But let's go ahead for the sake of argument and accept that for a moment. How did you determine what to include and what to leave out, or at least to shrink um, in your description? Because so much happens. I mean, um, it's I won't go through it all. I'll leave that for uh, for the readers. But from the U.S. Mexico War, really, to Wounded Knee, with everything in between, it's such a monumentally um, tumultuous era. How do you organize yourself, sort of, to take on a synthetic treatment of this type, yeah. given all that happens?
0: Yeah, in a lot of ways, uh, Andy, that was the most difficult part of it. You're you're absolutely right. What, but. but um, the period that, the period that i'm talking about uh so much happened so much happened uh and not just that so much happened simultaneously it's all it's all right. going on at the same time right and it's a i think you know i think you and know, i've talked about this before but i think if you had to come up with one word uh, to capture uh what's happening in the in the birds of the west uh, it would be energy just hmm. this extraordinary explosion of activity and of, and of sheer energy being being exerted and drawn from the west at the time um reminds me of that um oh that you know the, uh, the, the well-known quip of the canadian uh, canadian comedian who talked about a, a, a lord somebody or other who uh, jumped on his horse and, and rode off in all directions <laughs> 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 that's what it, that's what this feels like uh, so i had to figure out a way to somehow uh, Get that under control uh, and to organize it. What I did was first of all use uh, break, uh, break it into three parts. Uh, the first part uh, leads up to from eight, the 1840s leads up to and through the American Civil War. The Civil War was uh, critically important for Western history and for the uh, for the control of the West by the by the federal government. And Then I turn to the second part, um, which I call "Things Things Come Together." Uh, this this, this big sprawl of events uh, before the war kind of come into a focus uh, over the next uh, over the next ten or ten or fifteen years. And so I you know I look at exploration, I look at science, I look at um, I look at the human uh, makeup, you know this uh, sort of the human profile of the West. what's going on here? and in the um in the third part, um, i i uh, I call a uh, worked into being. Um, I look at the, uh, I divide that into three three very familiar uh, economies of the U.S. I look at ranching, I look at agriculture, and I look at mining, but I try to I use those as a way to organize what's, how the West is being absolutely transformed, uh, both in human and physical, geographical, environmental terms, um, and at the same time, being knit into uh, this national economy and an international economy. Uh, being the west is born as being brought into the world i mean part of this uh, of this larger context larger world Um, and i use these uh these familiar economies to uh to look at that but also to complicate all of those stories we're all familiar with images you know the lone cowboy for ranching and the uh, homesteader for agriculture and the the old sourdough and and the uh, prospector for money Uh, but i try to uh complicate that as much as i can and to show that how this really is a uh each of these things offers fundamental insights, not just into the development of the West, but into how the development of the West was reflecting uh, the larger course of uh, changing the uh, change and the larger course uh, of American the American narrative uh, in a way that takes us into modern America of the 20th century. Hmm.
1: Well, we are still in the flared end of the funnel, we're about to get into the narrow end, which will bring (laughs) us into specifics. I have one last question for you, particularly because you mentioned agriculture, which you write about incredibly well, but I still have to ask uh maybe betraying my own prejudice here were there any subjects you had to consider but which didn't necessarily fascinate you um and i'll offer like in other words was there just some castor oil that you had to take and as a confession yeah. this is what has always deterred <laughs> me from taking on a synthetic project of my own yeah. are the things yeah. you have to write about but don't really want to were there any yeah. things like that for you
0: uh, yeah uh, again it's a confession um, i have um this is an odd, odd thing to say because I grew up, I mentioned that I grew up in the newspaper family. My father was the editor, was the editorial director of the newspaper. I grew up in a very, very political family. Uh, and as a consequence, um, politics just bores the jabbers out of me. Just, <laughs> it just, it just, I can't, I cannot, I cannot get into it. Uh, but of course you have to, you have to. So uh, that came a little late. It came pretty painfully, uh, uh, but you know, did the best I could. This is not this is not a book I uh, think you would turn to to get a full scale, full blown detailed of uh, political history of of the West during these years. Yes. On the other hand, there were also uh, topics that fascinated me uh, that I ended up writing about at first, but then had to cut uh, because the book was um, uh, the book was very long to begin with. I ended up cutting it by like a fourth to a third. Um, for example, uh, religion. So mm. the role of religion in the West, uh, and I mean by that not just, you know, the history of the denominations, the history of Western Methodism, the history of uh, uh, of you know, Presbyterians or what, before. I'm talking about the role of religion in people's lives, uh, because you don't have to read too much social history, again, that early fascination of mine, to realize uh, these people's religion was very important to you know, how they how they looked at their own lives, how they, their values, shaping of values, how they interpreted, how they responded to uh, life, life on the frontier and life in the West. So I, uh, I initially wrote about that. I had a had a, had a section a section on that um, connected with agriculture in this part, uh, in this part, but um, but didn't have room for it, so I had to cut it out.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I bet that was painful, and it's one of those things I've definitely been admonished on this myself, is that we we, yeah. we, historians of the late 20th and early 21st century don't give nearly the attention to the importance of religion in daily life for most Americans um, no, right. that they imparted to it. Um, uh-huh. For whatever reasons, we seem to leave that entirely to the so-called you know, re- religious historians or the historians of religion, as if that could be kind of chopped out. Okay, right. let's get a little more specific. Um, there are library shelves dedicated to the topic of 19th century U.S. westward expansion. Uh, what what makes your take distinct from these? Or how does it interact with the literature that already exists?
0: Well, you're right. There's huge literature on this. <clears throat> um, I think uh, if I had to, um, in all modesty, <laughs> suggest how mine uh, is set apart a bit. What I really try to do in this book is both... Um, is is both uh, write a history of the emergence of the West, the birth of the West during these years, roughly 1848 to around 1880. But it it occurred to me that uh, the more I got into this, the more it occurred to me, I was convinced that uh, this emergence of the West played an absolutely critical role in the shifting of the uh, American narrative. Uh, middle of the 19th century, we can all agree on this, I think, in the middle of the 19th century, the, the, the course of American uh, uh, shifts. It takes on a a, a new trajectory uh, that carries it into the 20th century, carries it into what we think of as modern America. Uh, the event that normally uh, is, is uh, studied uh, for its uh, impact, you know, for, uh, is is of course the American Civil War. It's the it's the usual suspect. It was a civil war that helped transform us into this um, this new nation. Uh, whether we're talking about economic life, or our social life, political life, uh, cultural life, um, and what I ended up uh, arguing is that uh, that's of course absolutely true. Uh, it's it's undeniable. But what I ended up uh, suggesting is that in fact uh, the emergence of the West was uh, at least as important. That we need to think of uh, the emergence of modern, the emergence of uh, the West as um, a part and parcel of the emergence of, of modern America. That is the birth of the West, the birth of modern America. I think were uh, historical twins, along or triplets, I guess, along, mm-hmm. along with the uh, along with the Civil War. And we need to give the West uh, this. Uh, looking at this, the emergence of the West, we need to place that much much more in this in this uh, larger national and international context
1: uh maybe in distinction to the fact that it's still seen for many people as a regional story is that right it's sort of a, it's a sideshow to what's happening east of exactly. the Mississippi River
0: and of course yeah part of this of course is popular culture uh, one of the things I write about is how the west becomes uh this place more, more than other regions uh, more so than, than the south or the New England or so uh the west during these years as it's born it becomes this projecting Place this great screen up, upon which Americans uh, project their values, uh, what they want this country to be, what they hope hope, hope it is. Uh, they're projecting their their anxieties and their fears and their divisions. Um, so, uh, as a consequence of that, uh, the Western popular culture emerges as this place of of uh, great romance, of these fundamental fundamentally exciting stories but uh always seen as somehow almost exotic you know this other the, a recent book uh, calls this the america's the west the american elsewhere uh, it's a wonderful wonderful mm-hmm. phrase you know it's, yes. it's out there it's out there um so paradoxically it reflects what america is another but at the same time it's seen as that's somehow apart from uh the larger narrative the larger course of american history and what i'm arguing is uh, okay uh, we can appreciate the popular culture and we can study why that is the case but it's not true uh, in fact uh moving into the west during these years you would see you you would see in a way a um, a prediction really uh, of what uh, uh, modern america would be you can see modern america emerging in those events as well as the uh, the west being born
1: what do you think are those hallmarks? You talk about the birth of the West. What are those hallmarks of modern America that you see stirring in the American West in this period? Yeah, well, well there's several.
0: Begin uh, you know, with uh, economic development uh, you know, during these the emerge, uh, the, the, you know, the tra- our, our transition to modern America is one in which we shift increasingly from uh, an agricultural to an industrial economy. Mm -hmm. It's one of the rise rise of big business of of corporate power, and you can see that happening in the West, if anything, earlier than it does in the East, uh, and if anything, even more even more completely. Uh, If you look at agriculture in California, for example, this was some it was a it was a you know these enormous mega farms, you know, funded by giant pools of capital uh, and tied into the rest of the world through this economic network. uh, This net network through the, through the telegraph. Uh, mining, of course, uh, was a, uh, probably the most uh, fully developed industrial enterprise in, in America at that, in the, in, at that time, leading the world in its, uh, in its technologies. Uh, something like uh, science. Uh, one of the things that really drew my attention here was, uh, was um, the role of science in the West. During, again, this is during the same period we see internationally uh, revolutionary developments in a, in a whole list of of sciences: so geology, anthropology, paleontology, um, meteorology, <laughs> uh, oceanography. All of these, mm. uh, and if you uh, if you look in the West, you will see in every one of those cases uh, that this fundamental work is going on uh, out in the West during this time. The West, you know, in many ways, was sort of the uh, the global, the great global laboratory of uh, of some of these sciences. during this period of uh, during this period of great scientific uh, transition. Yeah. Uh, it's also the story of uh, of citizenship uh, and how I think one way you can think of the emergence of modern America is that uh, there is this increasingly wide embrace of different uh, peoples, of different uh, parts of, uh, of society brought into the American family, the political family, the social family. Uh, the most uh, obvious example of that, of course, uh, comes out of the Civil War, emancipation. But uh, it starts again, uh, as with all of these cases. Uh, it starts before the war. It starts in the 1840s when our boundaries, our borders, are extended uh, to include dozens of native peoples. Uh, when Hispanic people uh, are brought in after the war of uh, after our war with Mexico, uh, the, the dealing with uh, this extraordinary ethnic diversity in the mining camps, um, specifically regarding the Chinese. You know, the first time that. Significant number of Asians uh, became part of American society. So what you see out west is how we began to grapple with this question of who do we include in the American family, uh, on what terms, how do we try to integrate this great uh, this great human diversity into into one people? Uh, those are questions, of course, that are still with us. Certainly, very much with us today. We're all aware. We're all aware of the kinds of. Uh, uh, the kinds of uh, very difficult times in many ways we're, we're going through right now with the sort of the resurgence of white supremacy and other uh other aspects of that all of these ways and and, and more I think you can see out west uh how we are how these new themes these uh, these themes of, of modern life are introduced and in many ways uh they are pursued even more uh vigorously out west even more obviously out west than they are Uh, in
1: the East. Mm. Let's return briefly um, to the episode that begins the story, uh, which is this great coincidence. Can you say just a little bit more about that? And given what you do with it narratively given the space that it occupies in the book not only at the beginning but just sort of the amount ima- the, the number of words you devote to it you consider this incredibly important what's what's new about your interpretation are you the first person to kind of really think meaningfully about the intersection the coincidence of these two events the discovery of gold and um the uh the end of the u.s mexico war
0: yeah uh- I don't know whether I'm the first person. I'm the first person I know of, uh, but as you say, there's a huge literature on all of this. Everybody is, of course, familiar with the Colorado Gold Rush. I'm not the California Gold Rush. Everybody is familiar with the, uh, you know, the annexation of Texas and the acquisition of the of Pacific Northwest and the War with Mexico and the, and the, and the Mexican Cession after that. What struck me, however, was the first of all just the incredible timing of this. As I, as I said earlier, you know, virtually at the same moment. Uh, these two things happen expansion formally ends with the signing of that treaty and gold is discovered now it's not just a little gold <laughs> right. the amount of gold uh it came out of a uh, colorado for uh, i'm sorry california uh, in 1852 that was their banner year more gold came out of california in 1852 than had been mined um across the world during the entire uh 18th century wow uh, now California uh, California rush was uh followed pretty quickly by another in Australia these are uh, sort of seasonal you know, down unders uh, who went back to Australia uh, looking for similar deposits found them um, it was not nearly as large as that in California but it was significant if you if you look at the amount of gold produced in California and in Australia uh, between uh 1848 49 uh and the end of the uh, 1860s, that that's uh, more gold was produced during those years in those two places than it produced than it had been produced in the entire world uh, from 1492, from the Columbian landfall uh, until 18 until 1848. Uh, it's just it's just mind boggling. So much gold was being produced in California, for example, uh, when they established a the mint in San Francisco. Uh, they began processing and turning it into gold bricks. <laughs> They discovered that there, were, there was so much gold being processed that the, that the, that the, uh, the furnaces couldn't handle it all, and, and gold dust was being blown out of the smokestacks. So they <laughs> had, had to go around, you know, about a quarter of a mile around the mint, around, around the, you know, around the mint to, to sort of sweep up these, you know, gilded rooftops where, <laughs> where, there, was, where there was gold. Wow! Um, and that had, uh, you know, an enormous impact uh, on, on um, obviously on american history specifically beginning with this explosive growth of, of population along the, the pacific coast uh, in california but then from there up into up into oregon and, and washington now to put that in perspective what you need to think of is that uh, what we're looking at in california is a place that's two things it is uh, the wealthiest part, it is It is. a part of the United States that is producing the greatest, uh, most spectacular amounts of, of, of wealth and therefore very, very valuable. On the other hand, secondly, it is the farthest point in in what is now the expanded United States. It's as far as you can get uh, from the centers of power and authority and authority in the East. Uh, so in order for, in order for us to, to take full advantage of this place and to keep it, we had to immediately begin to think in terms of connection, of building these connections across across the continent, which, of course, means of integrating the West more fully uh, in, into the nation. So we can start with that. Uh, and then this also raises the question, what I mentioned a moment ago, the question of the broader question of citizenship, but more than that, the how we are dealing with these sort of... Uh, Cultural parts of our of this, of this expanded society uh, that are not part of the mainstream. So one of the ways of doing this is simply by um, dominating them as much as possible. So in California, because of the, following the gold uh, with the gold rush, we see what was um, one of the clearest cases of American genocide and uh, in, in our history with with native peoples. Uh, this is work, of course, that has been uh, getting a lot of attention uh, lately, uh, lately. Lately. Um, around the work of uh, Benjamin Medley. Uh, So, uh, and then this leads in turn to a series of gold and silver rushes uh, throughout the interior west. You you see them in California, uh, I mean, in Colorado, uh, in Montana, in in Idaho, in Arizona. And 1858, 10 years after Marshall's discovery of gold, 1858, silver is discovered and what becomes the Comstock Lode, which was at the time, the greatest silver rush uh, in human history up until that time, second only to uh, to some in in Mexico. Mm. Uh, so it, it just continues to spin off spin off uh, consequences uh, that I think uh, are essential uh, to understanding uh, the very this very rapid development and all of these events that are happening so quickly um, that we talked about earlier. Mm.
1: What does your book have to say about the importance of the West in the coming and then the prosecution of the Civil War? Um, And I guess maybe as a corollary to that, what do you say to those who insist that the West in this context should be limited to, say, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Tennessee?
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is kind of strange. It, uh, the West gets uh, the West sort of migrates eastward, in. <laughs> exactly. so you see. See a book. You see a book on you know the uh, the Civil War in the West, and you know they're talking about Tennessee for <laughs> <laughs> So, so uh, well, uh, uh, of course th- that makes some sense uh, as long as you think of the Civil War not as the Civil War years, but the Civil War is strictly the military confrontation uh, between the Confederacy. In the Union, all of that, you know, that action is overwhelming. Of course, in, in the East, uh, there's a, there's that one uh, sort of botched Confederate uh, effort, uh, this campaign to take uh, to take New Mexico uh, and Colorado, happened uh, very early in the war. But uh, as I suggest in the book, uh, it was doomed from the beginning. Uh, it was a, it was delusional to think that they might be able to pull that off. And despite some uh, early uh, victories uh, by the uh, by the Confederacy uh it was it was turned back uh it was routed it was something in the neighborhood of one third of all those involved in the in this uh in this uh, campaign uh, died before they got back limped their way back into into Texas so uh, if we think of the Civil War strictly as this military conflict uh that's right you know it's 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 it, you know, it's not even a sideshow. It's just you know it's barely on the map. If, however, we think in terms not of the Civil War, the military conflicts of the Civil War, but rather uh, what happens during the years of 1860-61 uh, to 1865-66, then you get a much different picture. Uh, during those years, I, I argue <clears throat> that the me, fundamental breakthroughs are made in the integration of the West into the nation, turning it into truly a part of the nation. Before 1861, you know, it was just uh, it was it was uh, <laughs> it was by no means under the control of the government. It, it was it was stumbling along. It was a story of ineptitude in many ways. Um, but the Civil War it begins to come into focus. It begins we begin to integrate the West uh, truly into the nation, and that then becomes the great story after 1865, of how, how that is completed.
1: Which brings us to this concept of greater reconstruction, which I think uh, certainly um, students who have been working on the West since the early 2000s um, are, you know, you kind of think of this era in the West in no other way, um, but certainly was revolutionary when you offered it as part of that, um, I believe it was your uh, WHA presidential address. Could you talk a little bit about this concept of greater reconstruction and how um, it differs from prior interpretations of this postbellum era mm-hmm. and kind of when this idea and how this idea coalesced for you.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, as you mentioned, my uh, first uh, effort to, to uh, argue along those lines was in the presidential address of the WHA, and that was quite a, 20 years ago or so. Uh, in doing this work uh, that I've mentioned before, and trying to set it into a national context, uh, increasingly it, it became uh, clear to me, as I said, as I said earlier, that the uh, emergence of the West was, Critical to understanding the emergence of, of modern America. Uh, so, what I decided to do, uh, wisely or foolishly, <laughs> not, not entirely sure, but I decided to take this very familiar term, "Reconstruction," and, and, and suggest that we, in fact, take that word literally uh, to try to convince ourselves to 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 to, to forget about momentarily. Uh, reconstruction is a history of the integration, reintegration of the American South into the, into the nation. And think in terms literally of remaking, the, 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 the re, re-bondling, if you want to, mm. <laughs> the rethinking of, the, re, you know, the, the literally reconstruction of the nation. Uh, and if you think of it in those terms, uh, then it becomes clear, I think, that we're talking about an event that begins with physical expansion, it's, it's reconstructed the same way a house is reconstructed when you add a wing onto it it is expanded in terms of the kind of questions uh, that we are forced to make especially because of this great coincidence uh, it uh, it is an, it, it's it causes all kinds of violence and conflict uh, which lead to their own sorts of revolution uh, resolution not just in the American Civil War which after all was uh, begun uh, more than any other way uh, over the issue over the expansion of slavery of African slavery uh, into the West. So we see the literally the uh, the nation being rebuilt, uh, rebuilt uh, uh, physically, geographically, but also rebuilt in terms of its fundamental uh, approach of its government, uh, the fundamental questions that are being raised and and, uh, and, and beginning to be answered. Um, so it. That's what I mean by the the greater reconstruction, the greater remaking, reformulation, uh, re envisioning uh, of the of the nation uh, during these years. And the West is critical understanding that, as is of course other events, especially the American Civil War.
1: Mm. Another helpful coinage of yours is what you describe as quote the war for Indian America." Um, can you tell about what you mean by that and? Uh, what work it does in helping us to understand native white conflict in this era in a new way?
0: Well, I came up with that uh, came up with that term to try to um, somehow bring together uh this uh, this uh, tragic subtext of the larger narrative, and that is the the uh dispossession of the military defeat uh the increasing encroachment on the lives of uh, of of native peoples. Uh, that's a part of the story we we simply cannot cannot ignore. But of course, it's uh, it, it's this is a story that that has dozens of different parts. Uh, so this was not a war in the sense that is uh, declared by the government declared to you. In fact, throughout this period, uh, every treaty uh, expresses uh, uh, the, the undying friendship and amity between <laughs> I mean, uh, the signatories, uh, whether you know. The union, the the government on the one hand and and whatever particular tribe you're talking about uh, on the other, but at the same time, what we see is this. uh, All of these events that we mentioned before happening all together uh, at the same same simultaneously. um, have the have the combined effect to simply destroy the economic foundations of Indian peoples uh, across the West. Uh, so the war against Indian America was in part one of, of what we call today settler colonialism. It is the uh, overwhelming sort of juggernaut change and development and, and uh, invasion uh, that, that uh, cuts the legs out from under uh, Native independence. And it takes, of course, to war also in a, in a military sense. Uh, the, um, but the de- defeat of Indian peoples in the West was uh, the, the military, of course, played its part. But what I try to suggest here is that the defeat of Indian peoples came uh, up far more than any military campaigns, uh, Custer notwithstanding, uh, but in fact, from this transformation of the West, this environmental and economic and political and social transformation of the West, as a result of this, uh, 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 this series of, of extraordinary rapid uh, developments.
1: Hmm. Something um, my stu- students commented upon, and you know, you came and very kindly visited my class within the last couple of weeks, my graduate students really enjoyed your book. Something that they commented upon uh, after they'd read it was how well you use statistics and numbers um, to make larger points, not necessarily in terms of you know tables and appendices, but um, I'm not sure it made it into the book, but in, in the manuscript form, you've got just one sentence illustrates this, which is uh, in describing the impracticality of extending chattel slavery into the Southwest, you note that, quote, in 1860, there were about as many Native Poles uh, in New Mexico as there were African-American slaves. Um, part of this is your ability to find a telling detail, but but you definitely do use numbers and statistics in elegant ways to illustrate your point. Um, uh, how... What is your approach in doing that and quantifying, I guess, and even if it's in elegant ways, um some of the things and objects understudied?
0: Yeah, well, I, I have to confess uh, to to a, a great interest or even a fascination with uh, with numbers and statistics to illustrate illustrate some of these things. So to the point that I have to be careful about not turning to them uh, too much. Uh, but they do tell us so much. you know in in a way, I guess that makes me a, a a, a Turnerian, <laughs> <laughs> Frederick Jackson Turner was himself fascinated of course with the census material and all of these, trying to illustrate his own ideas uh, with that um the trick is of course is to is is to use them only when they are so uh, striking uh that um they they make a larger point and then make it very vividly uh if you, if you if you draw on them too much uh out of out of the interest and fascination that I have, for example, um, that people get sort of overwhelmed by so I tried very much to, uh, to to use them to to you know, as I gather them uh, to use them as wisely as I could and to as sparingly as I could <clears throat> they apply much more to some areas and than others uh, agriculture, for example but also uh, above all, try to find um, numbers that uh, you know that make these points uh, Quickly and vividly, like this, uh, like this comparison of the number of, of uh, black slaves in New Mexico with the number of uh, people who have been born in Poland—about the same thing.
1: Well, until I uh, even as I asked you that, um, I was reaching for the book and I'd forgot you actually begin your very first words. You have a section called you know Prelude, um, and it's seven hundred and seventy-three million five hundred ten thousand six hundred eighty acres, <laughs> and then you go on to yeah. say that. Between yeah. 1846 and 1848, during the U.S.-Mexico War, the U.S. acquired more than 1.2 million square miles of land, and then explain what that would mean if we were to add that much territory to our borders today, which would include basically all of Mexico and Central America. But it's just a very vivid way, I think, to help readers um kind of visualize more than anything some of these subjects under consideration and as somebody who's terrified of numbers to the point of being enumerate <laughs> uh, i'm really impressed with how you deploy them uh, to, uh, to 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 really great effect um, You also write with incredible verve about the technological innovations that transformed the West between 1850 and 1900, including the telegraph, the railroad, and industrial machinery, among other subjects. Is this something I'm guessing that it is that particularly interests you?
0: Sure, Uh, it did, and again, this is something that increasingly dawned on me as I as I I did the research. Another great coincidence, another great parallel, uh, not. besides the great coincidence of the gold rush, um, the the birth of the West coincided almost precisely with what I call the movement revolution. That is, what was at the time, uh, the greatest uh, uh, acceleration of the technologies of movement, of people, of things, of information, uh, in human history until that time. Uh, It's in the the 1840s, of course, that the railroad begins to really take root uh, in, in the East, and by the time, this story is over uh, in the 1880s. It has expanded enormously. Say so the same thing about the, about the telegraph, um, which is um, was first, you know, famously tested by um, Morrison Vale uh, in the spring of 1844, just on the eve of, uh, of, of the election of James Polk and the beginning of this expansion. And by the by 1880, uh, there are you know tens of millions of, of messages being sent across the nation. So the nation sort of shrunk into being in a way through the telegraph and through these technologies of movement. Same thing is is true uh, uh, in, in the in the maritime commerce. Uh, the what's called a screw propeller uh, is first developed in the early 1850s, exactly coincident with the uh, you know the birth beginnings of the birth pangs of the West, uh, which speeds up uh, increases the amount. Of things can be uh, traveled uh, can be carried over over maritime routes uh, as well as as well as their speeds. So these two things I think have to be considered uh, together. And one of the effective effects of this was uh, that the um, that the American West was demographically quite different uh, from earlier frontiers. It's it's overwhelmingly male because there are so many young men who can head out west. Never intending to stay there, but to make a fortune and go back home, so many fathers and husbands are able to go west, you know, because they figure they'll go out alone and then they will um, send for their families later or go back home after they've made their uh, made their money. Um, it's also far and away the most ethnically diverse part of the country during these years. Uh, the uh, percentage of foreign-born persons uh, in Idaho, for example, was nearly twice that of New York. Uh, in 1870, 1880, and that's because the West was suddenly accessible in a way across the world, accessible in a way that uh, that no earlier frontier could could could, could dream of. Uh, so, this movement, revolution, and the birth of the West are uh, not just simultaneous, not just uh, overlapping and, uh, by coincidence, but in terms of their in terms of their consequences.
1: Well, something that I really appreciate, too, is you seem to take special pleasure in explaining how things work, and yet you do it in a way that brings the reader in and never feels pedantic. For instance, it was only really in reading your book and your section on uh, the telegraph and morse code that i finally understood um sort of how the dots and dashes are sort of created what they mean um and the just the unbelievable transformation that's wrought by the ability to pass messages so quickly so again it just it seems as yeah. if you really do enjoy explaining how things work which is a gift <laughs> i mean it really is yeah well it's a fact it, you know it's a- It's an
0: example of a fascinating example of of the kinds of things that you see being acted out of the West in so many different areas because of this great technological change that's going on across the world uh, during this time. One of my favorite stories there, uh, Andy, uh, I can't remember whether it's made into the book or not, but there was a uh, a young uh, telegrapher in Camp Grant in uh, Arizona, and he was in love with a woman who lived in uh, Los Angeles, and they wanted to get married. But the uh, commander at Camp Grant said, We can't afford to to give you a break to go to LA. Uh, She couldn't afford to come out to Arizona. So uh, she found a a minister uh, and he conducted the marriage ceremony (laughs) over the telegraph between. (laughs) So this fellow in Arizona and his fiance in Los Angeles were married over over the telegraph. Oh my gosh. Uh, And (laughs) years later, the way he tells the story, years later, he. you know, we'd be talking to fellow telegraphers, uh, and they would say, You know, I know your name from somewhere. Where was that? And he tells them the stories. All right. And they said, uh, I was at your wedding. <laughs> 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 and, of course, and of course, they were uh, in that sense. Uh, it, that to me really summed up a, a, so much uh, that was going on, so much of the effect of this movement revolution. It's it simply uh, distance uh, in times being something fundamentally different uh than they had uh, just just a generation before. It's of course an early one more early example of uh a tendency that we've been seeing increasingly in modern America, especially today uh with the, the world of the internet. you know when you hit that stem button on your computer uh it's
1: out, it's 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 everywhere. Yeah, it's terrifying, um, or yeah. Can be. Uh, especially if you hit reply all. Um, okay, <laughs> so the myth of the West clearly interests you as well. You've touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, what can you say about its emergence at this particular moment? Because it is this particular moment, particularly or especially that period, say, from the end of the Civil War until you know, maybe the collapse of the range cattle industry that I feel is kind of the richest material for the American mythmaking making machine um, to the extent that it still, I think, when people talk about Western, to the idea of the Western, it's still very much rooted in an 1865 to 1890 um, sort yep. of a place in time. Um, mm-hmm. Why does it endure to such an extent that for some academics and maybe much of the public, there is no such thing as, quote, a 20th century or 21st century West?
0: Yeah, uh, that's a... It's a really interesting question uh, that is not that easily answered but uh, it's an important question uh I, I recently retired but before i retired i've taught for 40 years uh, of course called the west of the imagination uh and it's really uh, meant to uh, meant to, uh, to tell the story the history of uh, exactly what you're talking about huh? the mythic west uh, uh, i think the key to understanding it uh, goes back to what i mentioned before uh, the west one of the things that happens during these birth years is that the west becomes this 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 stage upon which uh, americans and to some extent people across the world are acting out acting out you know what they want to be true about this country or what they fear is true about this country so uh, for example famously of course before the civil war the west is this projecting ground of the um, hostilities and the growing tension, conflict uh, between the slave southern states uh, and the uh, free states uh, to the north. So they project out into the West uh, what they're what they're afraid of, project out into the West, you know, the, uh, the increasing what they call an increasing this evil intent uh, of, the, of the other region, even though what I argue in the book uh, is that there was there was honestly a, no practical, no real possibility. Of African American slavery as it was practiced in the southeast, being implanted in the west, it was a it was a dead issue. You know, it, it wasn't there. I mentioned before. You know, the number of black slaves in New Mexico being the same as the number of Native Poles, um, but you know, it's that question, it's that issue that more than any other brings about the Civil War. How do we explain that? How do we explain that? Uh, we, you know, this nation was almost was almost torn apart um, over a question that had already been answered. Uh, strange thing. It's because the West, before the war, was playing this this, this role. It, it was the projecting ground of, of what people are thinking in the East. After the Civil War, uh, the same thing is going on, except the terms are reversed. After the American Civil War, you know, the West is this place where people project their vision and their hopes of national reunification. Mm-hmm. So things like the building of the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, begin to be are portrayed as this tr- truly unifying, unifying uh event in which um, all parts of the east you know can join in, in the in the creation of this of this extraordinary engineering project, which in which at the same time will link the east to the west and bound bind the nation together uh through um uh, uh, through this new technology. Uh, Indian wars are are portrayed uh as <laughs> you know what. Uh, Richard uh, Richard White is his, uh, what's it what's he called it um, the inverted conquest inverted conquest right where, I love uh, that they're portrayed, <laughs> they're portrayed you know, in, uh, in this mythic West Indians Indians are the aggressors right you know it's it's nuts, <laughs> it's, it's nuts. <laughs> their, their lands are being invaded you know their economies are being are are being crushed they're are, they're being increasingly confined to reservations but they're the bad guys you know. Well, why? Because we need we we need this uh, sort of this uh, uh, considerable uh, sort of savage savage threat uh, to allow uh, Western Americans to to show their stuff, you know, to uh, to to uh, uh, suffer their way into the uh, uh, into the possession of the, of this new country. So you see this over and over again, uh, and that's this becomes um, uh, one of the great legacies. Of uh, of of the birth of the West, now, this becomes a great uh, this becomes then a, a a mythic vision uh, of the American people uh, that survives into the twentieth century until today.
1: Well, one of the reasons why what we do as Western historians, I feel like, continues to have particular relevance or at least interest from the general public, um, as I've told you on countless occasions. I'm an enormous admirer of your writing style, which I consider unmatched by your peers in western history and even the profession at large oh, thank so you. Thank uh, well you. yeah you've heard me say it before and i'm on record now um <laughs> let me ask you this how do you approach your craft and what makes the experience of writing so obviously enjoyable to you <laughs> well
0: um well as i said before i, I grew up in a, a family of jur- journalist family and i went to a journalism school the j school they called it down at the first at SMU, uh, uh, your neighborhood, Annie, uh, and then later down at uh, University of Texas at Austin, uh, journalism is a is a very effective way of of uh, of teaching people uh, effective writing, which is uh, by, by that I mean writing that is direct, uh, that is simple, uh, that is straightforward, uh, that is uh, thought out. Uh, and ones that uh, I think relies also very heavily on the use of examples uh, is make it as, as vivid as possible. Mm. Uh, all of those things were taught to me and my, my, brother, uh, brother, as I said, became a journalist, uh, as we were growing up, uh, taught by our father and then taught by both of us, uh, in, in journalism school. And so I found that to be very, uh, very helpful once I began to, to write history, uh, in terms of the, the writing itself, I write very slowly. Uh, If I can do 500 words a day, that's a that's a real accomplishment. Um, And and then I rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. Uh, I think that's uh, always good advice for for uh, younger historians uh, getting into the business. Read it aloud uh, and see how it sounds, uh, how the the words uh, fit together, how they fit together, whether it makes sense. and, and finally, uh, I think a good a good way to learn how to write well is to read.
1: Mm.
0: <laughs> read a lot uh, in different fields, different areas. Uh, and then when you read something that's quite effective that you consider excellent writing, uh, ask yourself, uh, how is that done? How did the how did the author do that? what What was he or she thinking? Uh, how did they put this thing together? And I think if you s- sort of practice those fundamental, uh, those fundamental approaches i think you can uh, you've got a leg up uh, into writing that is uh, effect, uh effective and above all uh, approachable that is relatable by uh, other readers
1: and i presume that reading you recommend is not just nonfiction, fiction but could be you know you know fiction or short stories as well absolutely. is that right that's absolutely right i've got a couple more questions for you elliot mm-hmm. you've been very okay. generous with your time um i'm curious uh You mentioned Turter earlier. Uh, You mentioned a couple other historians, uh, probably who are more peers than antecedents. But let me ask which figures in the field um, have you taken your inspiration? I don't necessarily identify you. With a particular school, I consider you a terrific generalist, as it were. And there mm-hmm. are too few of you out there. But um, who were the? And of course, maybe they're not. Maybe they're not just Western historians. But who were the uh, the, the, the 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 writers um, who have most kind of influenced and inspired you?
0: Well, uh, um, first of all, what you might call a a highly modified Turnerian. <laughs> I, I think that the. Uh, the idea of frontier, especially if you take the idea of frontier and expand it uh, and complicate it uh, away from the way that Turner wrote about it, uh, is still a uh, still a highly provocative and a useful way to think about what was going on. I'm also increasingly, and you and I have talked about this, Andy, um, a great admirer of Walter Prescott Webb, uh, who was a longtime professor at the University of Texas at Austin again, uh, who wrote this uh, this classic word uh, on uh, on Western history, uh, the Great Plains. Um, in a lot of ways, the collection of essays that I wrote, um, The Way to the West, is a kind of an homage uh, uh, to, uh, to Webb. It's it Structured, its four essays are structured along the way, along the lines of what Webb did in the Great Plains. Uh, the title itself, The Way to the West, uh, is uh, the title of a book that Webb um, was reading At the time that he had his great aha moment, uh, Mm. famous, famous episode uh, when he first uh, came up with the idea of the book, The Great Plains. Uh, Contemporary writers, uh, I'm a a great fan of uh, what's my closest friends. Um, Richard White, uh, recently retired from uh, Stanford University. Uh, Patty Limerick, Patricia Limerick, who's uh, um, still teaching at the University of Colorado. Uh, Donald Worcester. Uh, environmental historian now retired from the university of kansas uh, these are uh, These are historians i've found uh, who are not just close friends uh, but I found to be uh, very provocative uh, and uh, full of full of insights uh, that I would never have had on my own uh if if it had not been for them hmm
1: i'm going to steal from another podcast host and unfortunately i listened to so many that i can't remember whom um who asked this uh, at the end of a uh, of an interview um with an author which is what would you hope that readers remember about your book most especially five or ten years from now if they if it's boiled down to its essence what would you hope it has done for them
0: i think it would be what i mentioned earlier that is uh it, in many ways, Andy, I think I don't know whether you would agree with this or not, but in many ways, the the great challenge of Western historians, certainly of my generation, and I think to an extent uh, yours as well, you're a bit younger than I am, um, is just, to just a bit. <laughs> is, uh, uh, is to bring the history of the American West fully, more fully into the American history, into the history of the of the nation at large. Uh, this somehow tried to uh, at least mitigate if not overcome uh, this tendency to see it, as we said earlier, uh, to sort of floating out there, um, something apart from the larger American story uh, that could not be more incorrect, could not be more wrong. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways, that is the great intent of this book, not just to tell the story of how the West came to being, not just to tell the story of how that interacted with the rest of the country, but to make it truly part of the larger story of American history so that you the argument would be you cannot possibly understand uh, the transition of this nation into a modern modern America uh, without bringing uh, without bringing Western history and its, its many events into that into that story. That's what I hope would be the uh, legacy of it.
1: I wonder, is that reflected to a degree in the title, that in order to, you know, have a true continental reckoning, you've really got to bring the West into the story, um, as opposed to sort of thinking, again, that all the important developments are east of the Mississippi and are that political is, from the top down? That is a, that is
0: pre- precisely the meaning uh,
1: of that title. Uh,
0: we have to think of American history continentally, and we have to reckon with the consequences, our, our consequences of understanding, uh, if we are going to uh, do that seriously.
1: Hmm. Well, you mentioned that you retired recently in 2022. This feels like a gauche question, but one that I feel obligated to ask anyway. Um, what, if anything, is next on your writing docket? Or are you gonna enjoy uh, traveling to far off places and um, leave the history to uh, uh, to reading rather than writing at this point?
0: <laughs> well, uh... I have nothing, nothing on the horizon right right now. I'm taking a break. This is a, this book as you you might suspect from the length of it. um, And the, the, you know, the the range of material it covers uh, was a real effort. uh, And I'm ready to take a break now, certainly traveling my wife And I, my wife, Suzanne just uh, retired February 1st of this year. And we just got back from a wonderful cruise along the, uh, uh, Chile, uh, coast the Patagonian Chile, Chilean coast. Uh, we're going to be going to uh, England and uh, in Italy uh, in in June. Uh, so we're going to certainly travel. I'm trying to do a lot of uh, volunteer work around my hometown of uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas. In other words, just sort of exploring what what life is out there after you after you leave academia and after you uh, finish a large project uh, like this. Who knows beyond that? I don't know. I cannot imagine not researching. Uh, I can't imagine not writing. It's so much a part of my own uh, – has been such a, part, such a part of my own life that, uh, sure, of course I'll do it in some way, but exactly how, I, I can't say.
1: Well, Elliot, thanks again for an incredibly interesting conversation. It was a real joy and a, and a, and a privilege to speak with you today.
0: Well, thank you. It's, it's always always a pleasure, Eddie, uh, to uh, get together with you, and I hope to do that uh, again soon, personally.
1: Excellent. The book is Continental Reckoning, the American West in the Age of Expansion, uh, just published from the University of Nebraska Press in its History of the American West series by Elliot West, alumni distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Arkansas. Hope you enjoy the episode.